America is the land of opportunity. Our founders believe that every individual has the God-given right to pursue their greatest potential, the freedom to flourish and govern themselves as individuals, families, communities, and a nation. And our founders worked tirelessly to develop a system of government that would protect that liberty. This belief has made the United States the freest and most prosperous nation in history and a shining city on a hill, an example to the rest of the world. On American Lives, we'll talk with individuals who have pursued their American dreams and made the most out of the opportunities guaranteed to them at our founding. These incredible men and women share the stories of their success, their love for our nation and its history, and why they consider the work of the Ashbrook Center so essential in educating future generations about the history and principles of America, the principles that sustain our great experiment in self-government, the experiment we call America. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of American Lives. Today, we're going to be talking with a well-known philanthropist, a well-known um, director of an important philanthropic foundation that many of our listeners have probably heard of, maybe been engaged with. Today, we're going to be talking with Clay Howerton of the Carson Meyer Foundation. Particularly, we want to hear Clay's story of himself, how he came to the foundation, and the story of the foundation itself and the important work that it has been doing and is going to be doing um, on behalf of the people of Kentucky and on behalf of the people of the United States. So Clay, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on American Laws. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's my honor. Um, maybe we could just get started by your own background and your own experience and your own biography. Um, I'm really interested to know how it is that you and where you started and how you ended up at the foundation. All right. Well, People love to talk about themselves. I'm no exception, so uh, I can do that. <laughs> Have to at that. I, uh, I grew up, was raised in a little town in Kentucky called Paducah. And for those who do not know where Paducah is, it's halfway between Possum Trot and Monkey's Eyebrow. And that is truly oh, that completely <laughs> irrelevant. Yes, sir. It also uh, is on an interstate halfway between St. Louis and Nashville. So uh, that's true and relevant. Anyway, uh, grew up here and stayed here through my high school years, at which time I joined the Air Force. I went to the Air Force Academy at age 17, and uh, that was a great experience, uh, formed a completely different worldview, at least in terms of uh, how I relate in society. Uh, because I'd been rather sheltered here in our little town. Uh, it did not change, happily, my worldview about uh, real relationship between government and citizens. I've always been a small government kind of person. I, I think that the standard where I should try to land on the political spectrum is as close to the, the founders of the United States and the Constitution that they formed as I can. And I like the fact that they built in a way to alter that when times need it. So we have an amendment process. I do not like when uh, people in government say, well, let's just change it because we want to and let's not go through the process. So that's my thinking on those things. And it, it was with me from growing up here, but 
it became more with me when I was at the Air Force Academy. Uh, then I had a career in the Air Force for 20 years after commissioning and graduation from that. Uh, got to go all around the world. Uh, and some of the interesting things I was able to do there uh, was manage a flight test program for the Israeli Air Force. That was fun. Uh, I got to work with the European Space Agency on a project they had to uh, try to test some materials uh, that they were going to send up to the moon Titan around Saturn. Uh, so you never knew what was coming uh, in the Air Force, and that was good. I had one deployment to Afghanistan uh, that was eye-opening and uh, encouraging at the time. It made me more disappointed in what happened last summer, uh, but the way that we just evacuated. Um, let's see. So after my Air Force career then, uh, I spent three years at the place of my terminal Air Force assignment, which is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, working as a contractor, civilian, uh, but working primarily on Department of Defense missions. And that was interesting and fun, but it was about the time that Obama uh, and uh, Harry Reid took over the purse strings in Washington, D.C., and uh, they never made a budget. And so the Department of Defense, like all other agencies, was on what they call continuing resolution authority. And I could see the writing on the wall that the Buck Rogers, gee whiz, high tech, futuristic stuff I was helping the Air Force with were not going to be high priorities and would not get funding. So the opportunity came to come back home to Paducah, Kentucky, and work on this family charitable foundation, the Carson Meyer Foundation. It was an easy call. Uh, we got back here in 2011. And I've been working on it ever since. Uh, so that's that's how I got here. Uh, you had that's, some other questions built yeah, in there, Jeff, but well, what, remind me really, what that was. Sure. But what's really interesting to me, Clay, is uh, your time in the Air Force, because now you're leading a foundation. Um, what did you learn in the Air Force? I mean, you were an Air Force Academy at 17. It's a very young age. Obviously, that help shape you into the kind of person you are and the kind of leader that you are. What kind of lessons, especially lessons in leadership, did you learn from the Air Force Academy and then from serving uh, those many years in the Air Force? Yes, sir. That's a great question. Uh, I learned that things don't happen just because we want them to. The work has to be done. I, I knew that, but I saw it and you learn experientially. Uh, I learned that all the little pats on the back that I had gotten saying, oh, you're doing really great during my high school career were not things that I should take too much to heart. One thing that they did exceptionally well at the Air Force Academy was take all of us who had been told, hey, you're really great, you're doing a great job, and convince us, prove to us that we're not all that. Uh, they pretty much made us fail over and over and wow. over again and made us pay the consequences for failure over and over and over again so that we would know uh, we need to prioritize. There will always be things that are outside our grasp. We were punished less the less important the thing we failed at was. So that was a great way to learn prioritization and humility uh, to know that, no, you're not all that great after all. Um, I learned that uh, teamwork is always important. Uh, I was bewildered later in my career when I saw the Army uh, 
having a, a campaign on TV, an army of one. I think that I remember is, that saying and think yes. that exact same. How, how can you be an army of one? Right. That was not in line with what we learned in the service. But uh, depending on other people, uh, even with your life. So that was valuable, of course. Yeah. So, so this idea of prioritizing and establishing clear order of the importance of tasks, working really hard to carry out those tasks, and as you say, having a great team with you to carry out those tasks. Um, how'd, that, how'd you bring that philosophy into your work with the foundation? That's also a great question because uh, it might not be intuitive that such a lesson would apply to philanthropy, but it does because the legitimate needs will always, always, always vastly outstrip the resources that you have. Now, when I say legitimate needs, obviously, uh, we have on purpose a very narrow charter, a narrow space within which we are allowed to give grants. Um, so we have a focus. And so for us, um, every good work that's being done out there is legitimate and wonderful and great, but they can't all be things that we can give to because otherwise uh, it would just be overwhelming. We don't have that large of a resource and really no one does. Everyone's uh, limited. So you have to have a focus. And so within that, we have to have priorities. And uh, if you don't mind, then this is probably a good place where I can tell you what our charter focus is. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that charter and the history of the foundation as it developed that charter. It's really fascinating. Yes, sir. Well, uh, the background then of the foundation, uh, we got to go all the way back to 1903. The foundation didn't exist and wasn't a dream for most of a century beyond that. But uh, in 1903, my great uncle, a man named Luther Carson, was working on the Incline Railway in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it happens that about that time, these couple of guys from the East Coast had been in Atlanta, Georgia, at the headquarters of Coca-Cola. Uh, and they had secured the rights to license individual bottling for the first time. And they were looking for entrepreneurs to go try to do Coca-Cola bottling to individuals. They ended up in Chattanooga for a while. They met Luther and he said, uh, if you will let me do this in Western Kentucky, where I'm from, he said, then I'll give this a try. And they said, go forth and conquer, sell some caramel colored sugary drink. And he bought a donkey and a little wooden cart and was pouring this uh, Coca-Cola into these little bottles and seeing if anybody would buy it. But what he did was he, he believed that that was going to catch on one of these days. And so when he was able to save his pennies, he didn't just put them in the bank. He put a lot of it into stock in this new Coca-Cola company. And so decades later, after he had been working hard at this and growing it, growing it, he had quite a resource in stock that he had been able to buy super cheap and it had grown in value. So now he had a resource with which he could be generous to others. And he was, and he passed that legacy of generosity on to his daughter, Jane Carson, and she and her husband, Dr. Lewis Meyer, before they passed, they had taken care of uh, their kids and grandkids and uh, wanted to set aside and trust a lot of this resource from Luther and from themselves that they had grown. And so that became the trust that became this foundation, the Carson Meyer 
Foundation. And so they established, and particularly Jane established with the help of my dad, uh, what the charter areas should be. And the focus is primarily Christian ministry. Uh, but we also then uh, fund Christian education and outreach to the poor. But that could be so broad, it is very narrowly focused for us by this. To qualify for uh, that category of outreach to the poor, the organization doing the outreach has to also share the why they're helping them. And the why is God was gracious to us. We want to share that with you. And so when they present that gospel truth as part of their outreach, they qualify within our uh, charter. And then there's another one that's local only that wouldn't be of interest to your listeners. It has to do with cultural activities in our town. But the final one that Jane added uh, last is where Ashbrook Center fits in. In fact, uh, a preservation of our Judeo-Christian heritage and cultural and societal values. And so that's how it is that we got tied in with Ashbrook. And uh, when you guys approached us with a request uh, to find out what we're about and see if you'd fit, that's how Ashbrook fits within our charter and how we were able to come alongside and be partners with you. So tell us a little bit more about the kinds of things that you're funding across the spectrum. It's really interesting, Christian ministry, as you say, Christian education, outreach to the poor, um, and then, as you say, preservation and, and, and strengthening of Judeo-Christian heritage and principles. What are some of the kinds of projects that you're working on or the, the, the kinds of projects that you look for when you're thinking about um, grant opportunities? Okay. Well, I should mention at this point that uh, there's a unique aspect of our, not unique, but unusual aspect of our charter, which is that we are time limited. We are going to sunset on purpose, expend the entirety of the resource uh, by 2034. Well, that's interesting. And uh, this is an idea that came to Jane from her dear friend, Chuck Colson. Uh, listeners may be familiar with Chuck Colson. He was a genius. Uh, he founded Prison Fellowship. He was the only person in the Nixon White House to plead guilty because he had been convicted in his heart by the Holy Spirit before he was ever in front of a jury. And when he was in prison, God put him to work. Like, okay, you're going to found this new ministry. Uh, reach out to prisoners. Well, Jane was friends with Chuck, and uh, he was very wise, of course. And when she was talking to him about this new foundation, uh, she had it in mind that it would perpetuate. But he suggested to her that a lot of family foundations lose lock after a few generations on what the founders wanted, even though it's written down. Uh, so she thought, well, let's keep it about a generation removed from Lewis and myself, and uh, then they'll know us, and they'll know what we really wanted to do. And that's my focus and my job. Um, so some specific things that we find that would be easily recognizable. Uh, for example, in Christian ministry, one of the ones that Jane was closely tied to uh, was Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. So that's something people can readily understand. You know, they have a single metric that is most important to them, which is how many people make decisions to follow Christ as a result of our ministries. And so obviously uh, in our relationship with the organizations that we grant funds to, uh, 
we want to know about the metrics that they're looking at. And then when they report back to us and say, here's what your money did, uh, we can understand based on what they told us they wanted to do. And uh, so a metric like that, this many people came to Christ. Well, that's an easy one that we can understand. Um, in education, you would expect that a lot of Christian uh, schools in Kentucky, as well as a lot of uh, universities that uh, focus, including uh, theological seminaries may be recipients. And typically those funds go for tuition assistance, scholarship sort of thing. But with uh, your area of preservation of our Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, we've been able now to bring in uh, supporting things like uh, Turning Point USA. Charlie Kirk is a relatively new organization. Uh, PragerU um, and Ashbrook Center. Um, some of these kind of things, David Horwitz Freedom Center, uh, folks who are very interested in preserving the, the founding of this nation, what it was about. Uh, listeners may or may not have heard of Wall Builders out of Texas, but uh, David and Tim Barton run that. That was one of the first ones that we brought on in this category because they are a bullseye on that particular aspect of the charter. Um, now, in that category, uh, it's important for people to understand that our funds can only go to 501c3 designated organizations. So we do and must remain, remain uh, apolitical. So if any of these organizations have, like Charlie Kirk's organization has a separate 501c4 where they do some political things, we cannot support those. And so uh, we have to be very targeted in the support we give in that area. Right. So uh, in, with this interesting charter and this interesting mission and the giving that you all have, um, I, I've heard a lot of philanthropic leaders like yourself talking in the last year or so about particular concerns they have about the challenges facing philanthropy, philanthropists and foundations, including foundations I'm sure like yours. What do you see from your vantage point about the challenges that are facing philanthropic foundations today? That is uh, interesting to me, of course, because we're living through it. Um, and there are always going to be these challenges and roadblocks. Uh, but there are teams of organizations helping each other, working around. In fact, this week I'll be meeting with a group of organizations in our little community that have that same focus. We're all different. Uh, charitable organizations, but we get together from time to time to talk about exactly that and how we are going to be synergistic in helping the community and the nation as much as we can. So some of the challenges, uh, this is kind of funny to me because I mentioned President Obama when I was just getting out of the Air Force and getting into uh, my first three years post-retirement. Uh, he said at that time, no one should be working on uh, government missions, particularly Department of Defense missions, who's not a government employee. And I thought, well, wow, that's specifically me. <laughs> so he says specifically, you should not have that job. Uh, now, he didn't know me from Adam, but his statement directly applied to me. And then when I moved into this uh, job with philanthropy, he said, President Obama, again, uh, had said, um, we should not have these philanthropic organizations being the, the source of help 
to individuals and organizations, they should turn to the government for these things. And I thought, wow, this guy is really after me. Everything I do, he's like, you should not be doing that. And no one should be doing that. <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> the, the folks in the government who are inclined in the opposite direction of me, where they want big government involvement in everybody's life, uh, that's a challenge to philanthropic organizations because they want people to turn to their state houses and to Washington, D.C. in particular, for all their help. Now, I said that we have very limited resources, and of course that's true, but our bank balance is not negative $30 trillion like it is in D.C., so I think we're in a better position to help. Uh, furthermore, we develop relationships with those that we help, and uh, so we, we know why we're doing what we're doing and what they really need, the government cannot do that, even if they were interested in. So that's one of the challenges is that push towards turn to the government for help. Another challenge, obviously, is the economy. This affects everybody in similar ways. But as you would expect, the resource that we have, limited as it is, uh, we have investment managers who seek to grow it and particularly to not lose it. Uh, the only way to grow it in our context with a limited time horizon is typically been through the markets. Uh, that's been the primary way. Now we've diversified as much as possible and diversity within the diversity and so forth. But when everything declines, so does our resource. And therefore, philanthropic organizations like ours have less to give. At the same time, the organizations we try to help have greater needs. So that's a double whammy. Right, right. What, what, what other, some other challenge that you face beyond the economy? Uh, I've heard some philanthropic leaders talk about um, movements which they see as um, potentially dangerous for philanthropy uh, toward um, government regulation of philanthropy and government imposition of certain requirements and regulations on philanthropic foundations. Uh, what's the state of play in that situation? Well, one of our trust officers is also uh, our accountant, and he deals with the Internal Revenue Service on our behalf. We're very thankful for him. Uh, but it is a bit of a minefield. Uh, as I mentioned, since we have an org uh, a, a category where we support organizations that are upholding our founding principles, there are those who will try to say, well, that is inherently political. And so you're out of bounds. And so it's a tightrope to walk that sort of thing. And uh, the best that we can do is say, you got to provide us proof of your 501c3 status that the IRS has blessed. Uh, and if you're staying within their requirements, then so are we. Um, but even with that, the IRS can be capricious. Uh, you may remember a name, Lois Lerner. Uh, she ran the IRS oh, yes. during Obama's right. second term, and she targeted 501c3 organizations to try to deny that status to those organizations that the Obama administration considered, quote unquote, conservative. And uh, so that's a challenge for all of us who are trying to support uh, true philanthropy that's like, don't turn to the government, but turn to each other and lift one another up. Uh, the folks in D.C. put teeth to their opposition to that by saying, we're not even going to allow you to be designated that way. And so that was a challenge, of course. 
what do you see given these kind of challenges? If, if you, um, I know you, you all are not engaged in policy, obviously, or public policy advocacy, of course, but just from your point of view at the foundation, what, what do you think if, if there could be one or two important reforms that would help promote private philanthropy and the kind of philanthropic activity that your foundation engages in? What, what do you think one or two of those most important reforms would be? That's difficult because I don't know a lot about uh, how policy might be implemented in that regard, but it would be, from my perspective, if someone could come along like a Ronald Reagan, where he had a simple but profound vision for America's next several years, um, where he could encourage people or she, whoever it might be, that could come along and encourage people on a nationwide scale that uh, turning to your neighbors and your churches and people who know you and love you is superior in principle and in practice to turning to the government, whether it's at your city hall or your state house or especially Washington, D.C. Uh, Reagan had us focus on two primary missions uh, in Soviet communism without going to war and reduce the, the government's burden on your yeah, uh, that would be uh, tremendous to have an, another Reagan. As you know, Ronald Reagan um, helped actually to inaugurate the Ashbrook Center back yes, in sir. 1983. Um, uh, your interest in civic education, because as you know, and our listeners know, Ashbrook has been involved since 83, actually, with President Reagan in educating Americans in the history and founding principles of our country and preserving the heritage of our founding. Um, how, how did you all get connected to, to Ashbrook? Or, or maybe for our listeners, you mentioned that. What do you find in Ashbrook uh, about our mission or our programs that you think this is an important and a good fit for your foundation? Well, it is, uh, Jeff, that, that civic education. Uh, too many young people uh, remain ignorant about the founding of this country. And Ignorance is something that we all have. It doesn't have anything to do with intelligence, but it's a lack of knowing certain facts. Um, and we don't know until it's shared with us or revealed to us. So the way that Ash reveals those truths, uh, relevant facts through civic education is very valuable and is a, a direct hit on our charter space. Uh, so that's why we wanted to support you. Um, it is vital for people to understand why the founders did what they did. Uh, it was a great experiment. No one had really tried what they did. Uh, it's not typical around the world today that people have liberty and self-governance. And of course, uh, it ties in with our other charter areas too, though, because the founders knew that to have self-governance, the citizens were going to have to govern ourselves. And to do that, we had to hold ourselves accountable in our daily lives to an authority greater than the, the guys with the guns over there, the, the constabulary and the uh, military and whoever else. So that authority and the only way we could have equality would be the creator of the universe sets the rules that apply to everybody. And that principle led our founders to say, OK, we can have this simple constitution. We can have this simple relationship between the federal government, the state governments and the citizens. 
And if they will govern themselves in accordance with that principle that we're all accountable to the same standard that's above all of us, then we have a chance at liberty. Yeah. That's and because yeah. I was just going to say that that emphasis on self-government, and I can see now your connection to the idea of promoting civic education of free and responsible citizens, but also connecting that to the kinds of religious and moral and philanthropic social activities that build up um, the capacity of citizens for self-government. I can see how those are a powerful connection in the, in the foundation's mission. Yes, sir. And I would point out to listeners that does not equal theocracy in any way. Uh, we have freedom of religion. The founders understood, though, that if you don't have uh, subservience from top to bottom to an authority in the universe, then it's a lost cause. We'll just do what we want. I mean, Dostoevsky had said that himself uh, in, in Russia. It's like, if, if there's no God, then everything must be permitted. So we can't have that. Some people are inclined to murder. We can't just say, well, that's, that's your understanding. That's cool. No, there have to be rules. And so they have to be based on something. Um, in, your, in, the, in the foundation's work and your personal work uh, at the foundation to, to promote uh, principles and history and ethic of self-government, your time in the Air Force, I think our listeners would be really interested to know a life lesson that you've learned that's been really central and important to you, Clay Howarden, to you as who you are as an individual, and to your work at Carson Meyer. Well, that life lesson for me would be, I am not the ultimate authority. I am subject to authority. And uh, it's, it's easy, but it's impossible. So <laughs> uh, it's just the, the struggle that we all go through. If we are trying to live our lives in accordance with that truth, well, we will fail because all of us are less than perfect. And so uh, the standard is perfection and we can't get there. Well, then that ties into another personal life lesson, which has to do with my faith, which is that as an imperfect person, a sinner, I need mercy and grace. And there's only one that can give it. And that's the creator and the authority over me. So uh, keeping that focus is, is my life lesson. Well, that's a very humbling, but also very inspiring uh, understanding and lesson. Clay Howard and of the Carson Meyer Foundation. Thank you so much for taking the time today to join us on American Lives. Really appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. American Lives is a production of the Ashbrook Center. Ashbrook strengthens constitutional self-government by educating our fellow Americans, students, teachers, and citizens in our country's history and founding principles and the habits of reflection and choice necessary to perpetuate our republic. If you want to learn more or get involved in this vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org. And if you enjoyed this episode of American Lives, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, please consider subscribing to The American Idea, the Ashbrook Center's podcast on the documents, debates, people, and events that have defined and continue to define our country.